Flexibility is the word. I mean, think about what happens to a tree when it has no flexibility. The slightest wind starts starts to compromise its integrity, right? And it's its internal structures. We are the same exact process. So just think of yourself that way. You want to be supple and flexible and you can develop that. Life can most of us are born that way. Life beats the shit out of us. We get these coping skills, they become fixed. They are productive until they are not. When they aren't, you have a pain point. Once you have a pain point, you can start to actually rework this relationship with yourself, right? So that's sort of a basic prerequisite that we're coming in with. And then you can do a ton of stuff. Like you have sort of endless portals. You can start with embodiment practices. Move your body. Move it. Walk. Get exercise. This is, again, endless options. And the pandemic made it that they're in your house and they're like available 24 hours a day. You got insomnia, get up, go work out. You know, it's three o'clock in the morning. Hey, my friends, this is Nishant, and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Gurk Show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves and being a source of healing. My job on the show is to invite the world-class experts to extract the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. This episode is brought to you by my own Friday newsletter. Every Friday I share a newsletter which describes my new learnings and these learnings can be in the form of new books I'm reading, different podcasts I'm listening to and new blogs I'm exploring to learn new topics such as trauma, healing, mindfulness and much more. You can find the newsletter link at my website https colon slash slash nishangurg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me and today's guest is Sarah Circus. Sarah received her MA from Boston College where she studied counseling psychology and then began her doctoral training at George Washington University with an emphasis on adult psychotherapy from a psychoanalytic perspective. Upon completion of her doctoral studies, she completed her internship and postdoctoral fellowship training at two inpatient psychiatric hospitals in the Boston area. There, she worked with people who were suffering from the most severe and retractable forms of mental illness. Those experiences taught her the deep and enduring value of comprehensive and collaborative care from a multidisciplinary perspective. In addition to her psychology training, she has studied extensively the use of mindfulness, functional medicine, hormones, and how food, medicine, and mood are interconnected. This is very juicy conversation with Sarah, and we cover many, many grounds. Please be patient and feel free to take breaks to digest the richness of awareness and wisdom Sarah shares. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Sarah. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure to have you on the show. And I was wondering where should I start from? Because there are so many topics in my mind, including mindfulness, therapy, psychology, flow, hmm. so many things. So I thought I would ask you about one book that you posted about in your Instagram 
post in August 2020, if you remember. And that book is called, and that book is called The B- Mastery by George Leonard. Mm. Could you describe why do you recommend that book? Yeah, totally. Okay, so this is a great little book that's packed with, it's almost like philosophy. And this book to me does the best at explaining like essentially practice, just the the game of how much mastery is about actually about like failing and trying and staying with stuff. And um, like, I'll give it to, I have a son who's 12. I'll give it to my son you know, when he's a little older, maybe 13, 14, 15. It's just awesome. It's a great, like, kind of the power of very sort of simple, well-said advice. How did you get introduced to this book? Okay, I got introduced, well, first of all, I have like a love affair with books. So, and I also (laughs) believe that, I believe that books, sometimes you pick the book, but I think sometimes the book picks you. And this was an uncomplicated case where I literally just liked the cover. I was like, oh, I really like that cover and the title's cool. So I just feel like it probably picked me as somebody who spent a bunch of years where if I wasn't good at something, I didn't do it. So it was just one of those, you know, serendipitous picks. You you said you were good at it and you won't do it. What do you mean by that? Like, you know, you get into habits, right? And for me, there were some things I had like particular aptitude for and there's things that I wasn't good at. And I found myself over time, especially in my 20s, also because I went in to become a psychologist, right? So very young, I chose to be a specialist. And you you really get sort of in a, you get in a lane and that's kind of the bandwidth that you're going to now do stuff, right? So I just started like not learning new things, not doing, not continuing to do something unless I perceived myself as good at it. And it was really helpful to understand just the concept of working through a very natural period of time where you're not proficient at something, but you do it for other motivators. And, you know, like I think about it developmentally, like when you watch a kid learn to walk, they don't have this higher cognition that gets involved. It's all very kind of instinctual and, you know, governed by developmental urges and muscle development and brain development. And so they don't spend a lot of time worrying about whether or not they're good at walking. They just spend a bunch of time falling down, hitting their head, you know, figuring out equilibrium, and then you start walking. And so I had to kind of retrain myself to think like that about achievement. And and this book in particular talks about that philosophy in a really beautiful way. Earlier in our conversation, you said that you have a 12-year-old son. I do. What kind of values do you talk about with your son or what kind of conversations do you have with your son to inculcate all these practices? Well, if you asked him, he'd be like, she's annoying and (laughs) 
has limited vision and poor execution. I'm decidedly uncool and he's like wants nothing to do with my psycho babble. You know, it's a big question. I, I and I'm like all parents, you know, as flawed as the rest. But I think through modeling, like so I used to live in here's a here's a I'm gonna give a concrete example. When he was two, we moved to Hawaii. He lived and was raised in Hawaii for 10 years. We moved back to where we're from in Massachusetts, in Boston, in July, right? And more than what I tell them, kids, you know, humans learn through modeling. We actually learn through sort of what we see. And words have an impact. They can make us feel connected and they can really injure us, right? They do have an impact. But modeling kind of rules the roost. So even more than what I tell him, because he doesn't want to fucking listen to me. (laughs) What he gets to see, like this was a a great period of time. It is a great period of time where he's getting to see me rebuild a career and what that takes. What does it take to reinvent yourself? And what does it take to start over? And how do my parents navigate being new? And so... I think probably I'm banking on that my actions will speak louder than my words with him. Although, you know, I fill the air with a lot of bullshit too. So it's like, I'm sure I tell him a lot, but (laughs) what I hope he gets is from really kind of watching us not quit, turn pain into energy, turn fear into energy, turn, you know, because life will cripple you if you don't. So it's a really good, that might be one of the best questions I've had. Where did you grow up, Sarah? I grew up here uh, where I live now. I grew up like in a suburb outside of Boston, Mass, and called Westwood. Could you share any memorable story from your teenage years or anything that comes to your mind? Well, I mean, look, I'm the youngest of six. I had grew up on this big sort of property that had a lot of land and stuff. So a lot of my life feels quite idyllic. But if I had to say like something that really shaped me like outside of my family. So I wasn't a good student until my junior year of high school. I was arguably sort of got through high school by being personable and a good athlete. And then something changed for me that summer going into my junior year. I don't even really know what it was, but I suddenly gave a shit. Previously, I was totally disengaged. I was either totally on or totally off. And I, you know, all of a sudden gave a shit. So I started to really (laughs) apply. I started to apply myself. And at any rate, that year, the end of sophomore year, so the last year that I really just like didn't give any effort, I had challenged the headmaster at my school. I had challenged her publicly on some firings that she had. And she really handled it with such. Now I look back and I realize, like, wow, she was so incredibly graceful about it. And then at the end of the year, at the last assembly, of the school year, there's a, an award that the that the head of school gives out every year called the head ma- headmaster award, and it's basically given to one student throughout the whole school, grades five to twelve, that she sort of thought you know exemplified 
some good quality, right? And I was a pain in the ass. I was a C minus student <laughs> with a lot of vision and a bunch of attitude, right? And and decent intentions, right? If I challenged you, I do think they had good intentions. And she gave that award to me that year. And I remember like my friends, because they knew what kind of student I were, they were like laughing in the audience while I got the award. And it was rightfully so. But it really struck me like what a pivotal decision that was for her, you know, like to not give it to like the straight A kid who like colors inside the lines. And, you know, I thought it was really pretty, pretty provocative of her. Did you ever ask her what made her to give that? No. To you? No. I always felt she had a kindred spirit with me. I later found out she and I had the exact, she, by the way, she's still, actually, I'm going to send her this when it comes out. <laughs> I've never spoken to her about it. She still is the head of school there. And I later found out my senior year, I found out that she and I had the exact same Myers-Briggs and and I forget what my Myers-Briggs is, but it's like the rare one that only happens in 3% of the people. So as I studied psychology, I often thought like, oh, we were just like, kid. like I spoke her language, you know. And in what ways did you challenge her before getting that mastery award? Oh, what way didn't I? I mean, you'd have a quicker answer if we could say what ways didn't I? I mean, everything. I was a pain in the ass. I was, <laughs> I was, um, ugh, I mean, please, I wouldn't have wanted, wanted to have taught me. I was disengaged, but hadn't, I was an inconsistent student. I had some classes where I was, you know, participating and I was like trouble. I mean, I was a rascal and, and I was provocative. Like I would, you know, so I challenged her all the time. And something that year, some sort of exchange must have shifted it for her. And I said at the beginning, I'm like, oh, I don't know why that summer was the pivotal point. But as I say, the, as I say this out loud, I mean, this is probably why, right? I didn't know it consciously, but she, she, she like, it was a challenge. It was an invitation. She was basically saying like, I see you like, okay, you want to, you want to like take me to the mat then take me to the mat start engaging showing up like and it was a challenge to me and it worked it, it really worked i mean i became a great student and and more than that like fuck the grades i became engaged and i was i was like turned on by learning and thinking even more than learning i actually hate learning but thinking did you ever talk about your disengagement and your attitude in your family? Hmm. When it was happening? Yes, uh, during your school time. No, no. And the really interesting thing is my mom was super provocative. Well, she wasn't provocative, actually. My mother was, she was kind of radical. So my mom and my dad although I think probably my mother spearheaded it and my dad was smart enough to know she had a good idea. My mother never spoke to me even once about grades, even when I was getting a C minus average. And I don't think, I don't know if she's died and I can't ask her. I didn't think to ask her. I've, I've wondered over the last say five years, 
She never, she never checked my report card. When I got good grades, she didn't say that's awesome. And when I got bad grades, she didn't say that's bad. She just left it alone. She would say, if you can live with that and that's the best you can do, it, you know, it's, this is on you. And what it did, what I see now that it did is it created this in, there were a bunch of years where this was a jump ball. I mean, she could, I mean, this was an experiment that could have gone wrong. I could have been a dropout, but I found inside of me a, a well source of intrinsic motivation. And it to, to this day, now I'm 46, it's never run dry on me. I don't need any external things to make me, you know, set goals, learn new things, investigate, super self-led, almost to a detriment. So, no, she, I never spoke to her about it. She never spoke to me about it. Then I went on to get a master's, a doctorate, and, and yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to think about. Thank you for explaining. So, how do you appreciate and encourage your son because you definitely didn't grow up in that environment? Well, my parents were super encouraging. And like I was into sports, I had everything available to me. But what they didn't do is engage in sort of power struggles around my effort. They seemed to, whether it was by ignorance or consciousness, they seemed to just sort of not engage it. And they would make available anything I was ever interested in, but they, and they would support me, but they didn't. They didn't like get in. I was never grounded for having bad grades and I got a lot of years of bad grades and nothing like that. Okay. So with my kid, well, my kid's a different kid than I was, right? So he's got his own ball of wax, like his own little personality, <laughs> you know? So it's like, he's his own person. For him, I'm trying to think because he's 12 and, you know, it's like, I don't really, but I'll say this about him. He's super internally motivated as well. And, you know, he's a single born and I'm the youngest of six. So he's very internally motivated, but he has a different relationship to risk, just like firstborns and only or single born children do, right? Whereas the youngest tend to be, you know, sort of feral, right? And so I certainly fit that classic youngest and and I got three brothers that are you know rough and tumble and then two sisters so and he definitely fits so it I would say I use, try to use all the same motivational tools and actually I've consciously decided now he's a, he was in a progressive school that like never had tests or grades starting in sixth grade now he's at a much more traditional New England prep school here that has grades and all of that and I do the same thing like I don't really I mean he happens to be totally different than me and gets really good grades. But if he didn't, I would probably adopt the same strategy that my mother has. You know, there's a lot of things you can do if we're just talking about motivational fuel sources to encourage intrinsic motivation and oftentimes giving a lot of autonomy, right? Like giving them actually a lot of slack to sort of find their way. And parents, we bump up against our own stuff, right? Because sometimes in the case like me, 
my parents gave me a lot of slack and, you know, I ran with it. So sometimes it's risky because you're like, oh my God, my kid's getting C's. But I'm living proof that the payoff can really work. I have two follow-up questions on this, on what you just described. What is your personal relationship with risk now? Great question. Okay. So for many years, as part of a long and, you know, sort of developmentally mediated process, I'm actually like very introverted and I'm not shy, but I'm introverted. That's my problem. That is me. Yeah, totally. Exactly. And actually tons of people that end up kind of doing public facing stuff are, it's really just, a, you know, when we talk about introversion and extroversion, it's a discussion about energy efficiency. Like how do you get your energy? How do you rebuild your energy? How do you restore your energy after you've spent it? And energy just being a metabolic, you know, exchange, right? So I'm introverted. And so like, I spent a lot of my life, I always had a private practice. I'm a therapist by trade and an executive coach now and do a bunch of other fun stuff, right? But I used to just have this private practice and I enjoyed it. But I, the way I experienced it was I started to get bored. I felt bored. And I knew that boredom was my body trying to tell me that, you know, something else is needed or necessary, right? There's got to be some sort of change. So... I started realizing that I didn't really have much risk in my life at all. Like I, you know, had this private practice. It was self-sustaining. I was totally comfortable. So in 2017, I actually like consciously, I told my husband and I told my best friend, who's also a shrink. I said, my goal for 2017 is to expose myself to as much rejection as humanly possible. and that's how I got like into maybe it was even 2016, whenever I started my blog. So now I have a very different relationship with risk, but that was a conscious choice. Back in 2016 and 2017, what was the underlying behavior or mindset you were going through that you really wanted to make changes and take risk because there is always something else going on. Totally. A uh, couple things, always. couple things. So my mother had died a couple years earlier and I was sort of in a different phase of grief, right? And uh, she died maybe three years earlier different phase of grief. Also developmentally, my son was getting older. And so a bunch of the stuff that was super valuable, having a private practice, like I could set my own schedule and I could be there as much as I wanted with him or as little. And right. So I had all that control. Like he didn't need me as much. He was now in school for a bunch of the hours of the day. And mostly for me, it was an internal experience. For me, it was boredom. And actually, when I sat with boredom, boredom felt like restlessness. And that sense of restlessness, when I didn't try to suppress it or make it that it was fucked up, I just was like, okay, I feel this way. I'm unsatisfied. And it eventually became a fuel. And I started to be like, okay, well, how can I satisfy myself? Like, how can I breathe some new energy into 
what I'm doing. And I noticed that, you know, rightly so, I just felt a little stuck, but, you know, I only felt stuck because it really served its purpose. Like I had just moved to Hawaii. I had a parent dying. I had lots of stuff going on in my life at the time. And like having the stability of like something really familiar that you're proficient at, that you're getting paid well, was so valuable. And then when I was ready, my body started getting bored and I felt it as restlessness. So you're right. There's always more going on than it appears. Yes, very much. Did you always want to be a clinical psychologist or what events were leading up to that point? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think about that now. And like, even, you know, now knowing so much about the brain, you know, I'm giving you a hypothesis. I'm making sense of shit that I just did. Right. But at the time, so I was at George, I went to Georgetown undergrad and I studied psychology and English. And I always felt I had an aptitude for like kind of connecting with people and getting to like their sort of essence, right? So I was like, oh, people were like, you should go into psychology. But I had a handful of people at Georgetown that were like, you should try to be a writer. And I think the truth is at the time, I really maybe wanted to pursue writing, but psychology felt like I could write and I would get out with like a degree that could support me. And my when I was 19, my parents divorced so I was a freshman or junior, no, I was a sophomore at college and my parents divorced. So when I graduated from college, like my whole family was in flux and I just had this sense of like, you need security, right? And, and the human mind fascinated me always, always. I mean, as far back as I can remember, I don't know that I knew it that way. I just knew that people and like getting to understand their insides was my jam. And like, and when I first went into psychology, I actually was like really into sort of forensic pathology. So I was like really interested in like sociopathy, antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. And I did forensics for a bunch of years while having a private practice with like high functioning people in kind of long-term insight-oriented therapy. And then about 10 years ago, I really like tired of suffering. I tired of like the game of pathology, like diagnosing people, t- focusing on what's wrong with you kind of like lost its luster for me. And that's when I really started to go more toward like positive psychology, wellness, like what would happen if we just steered our vessel toward wellness instead of looking at pain and suffering all the time. Not that there's not always space for that, but that primary shift felt very authentic to me. And it was in 2016-2017 time frame? No, it was probably 2012. I had always dabbled, let's be clear, and like sort of lived that way in my own life, right? But in my career, I really... And it started slow. It sort of just started 
just like the executive coaching did, right? It just sort of started as this thing, this like rabbit hole that I was like kind of curious, like on the side, kind of just testing it out in my own life, you know? And then it just continued to to develop. And and I had a bunch of clients, you know, because it's always the clients that are like any proficiency I have in my craft is because people come to me and pay me to be super vulnerable and trust that, you know, we're going to find our way. Right. And so it's always like them. That is why I develop any kind of, you know, style of work that I do air quotes right so a bunch of clients like were curious and wanted to sort of they were like oh this is interesting and you know I really owe it to them because they were open to like this concept where I'm like you know what if we just like radically changed how we even talk about you and like think about you and what if we just spent today like I would put up these like these challenges right I'd be like what if we spent today like And just the sole goal was like, what have you done right? What's worked? And they were game for it. Yes, I want to ask you a follow-up question on this. So whenever you have an executive coaching client or a therapy client, what set of emotional skills do you teach or recommend to them to master certain areas of their lives? So let's also for your audience, let's deconstruct this sentence. When we say master, what we mean is that you develop the capacity to both enjoy your life. I do want you to enjoy your life, right? I don't want to, um, I'm not saying life is suffering. There's got to be a balance, right? But one of the things is that We all have to develop the capacity, the psychological flexibility. It's an internal scaffolding, the psychological flexibility to tolerate discomfort. And discomfort can be physical. It often is. It's emotional, right? It's psychological. Mm -hmm. People are grieving. And so when we say mastery, it doesn't mean that you feel good all the time. It means that you tolerate discomfort with a new relationship, a new internal relationship to your struggle. So with that definition of mastery, ask me the question again. Now I'm forgetting the details of the question. What kind of new set of emotional skills do you teach to your therapy clients? Okay, so I don't sort of teach anything, right? It's This is, I trust that they have it all inside of them. Mostly I consider myself a professional question asker. That is what I consider myself. And I think that if you ask the right questions, people figure this shit out for themselves. We're so much more knowing and capable and I want to say smarter, but it's like such a limited word than we think we are, right? So I don't really teach them anything, but I will say, that for me, I see it kind of all because I tend to be uh, like, you know, scientific. So I, I tend to see it as an integration process, right? A neurobiological integration process. And the primary task is self-regulation. And within that, we're going to use, and I don't mean self-control. I said self-regulation for a reason. And I don't ever use the word control. I use the word influence. 
This is not a white knuckling control. This is a supple, flexible, internal state of existence uh, that is both transient and achievable. And so within that goal that you can change your own relationship with deep held self-regulatory patterns, I'll use breath work, I'll use mindfulness, we'll use some cognitive behavioral stuff, people will use all kinds of sleep. I'm going to talk about a primary way to better self-regulate sleep, hydration. These are not sunrise, get sunrise and sunset every day. So there's like a whole slew of stuff that we'll quote work on. And by the way, when I say we'll work on, I mean, they got to do it. This is an inside job, right? I mean, I'm with you one hour a week. So they got to do it and you got to want it. And that's part of work is what is it that you're willing to commit to as an outcome? Yes. You know, so then there's like a, if you take self-regulation as just a thing, right? It's not self-control. It's also not, you know, white knuckling our emotions. It's, it's something else. And then you just have like now, especially like with YouTube, I mean, it's endless. You have a smorgasbord of free. Before we even get beyond the paywall, you got free <laughs> stuff, right? That is like, it's it's endless. It's endless. And if it's not true, there are there are there are real true sort of mental illnesses that some people are, you know, I, I would say born with, but I'm gonna caveat that, that genetics load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. And nowhere might that be more true than in the field of psychology and psychiatry. When you get down deep, we actually know very very little about that interconnected relation. We know it's there and we increasingly know it, but you know, even the theory of like, you know, depression is tied to a single neurotransmitter anxiety. That's all sort of being debunked. Right. But there are, there are some mental illnesses where no matter how much you breathe your way in or namaste your way or gratitude yourself, the people have imbalances. If it's not that, right? And I'll know that pretty quickly. If it's not that, everybody can change their relationship with anxiety, fear, worry, depression, grief, anger. It's a big one. Shame. All these things. Everybody is capable of shifting and influencing their relationship with those sort of pivotal internal experiences. To shift and influencing our relationship with unpleasant emotions such as grief, depression, anxiety, etc., etc., could you recommend us some concrete practices in the umbrella of self-regulation and mindfulness, so and so forth? Well, so for breath work, just start playing with it. And I'm going to give you three that are a great starting point. And by the way, when I say starting point, like, you know, don't come to me in two weeks and tell me, oh, great, I did that. This is like six months of <laughs> practice, right? Diaphragmatic breathing. That's the most studied form of breathing. So you're going to also, if you're a science junkie, you'll get, you know, a lot of research out there on, you know, what it does to heart, rate, all the stuff, all the details. I don't want to get in the weeds. So diaphragmatic breathing, I love box breathing and I've started to get into Wim Hof, you know, cause who doesn't love a little free high that 
is good for you, that feeds your brain, right? And it's from inside yourself. And all of that's like, you can find, again, great resources on YouTube. And so, you know, those are the three that I start with, with my clients. And for me, with my clients, it again, it's on them. There's no part of my relationship with my clients that has an ounce of codependence because first of all, they pay me to not bring my own bullshit into the <laughs> relationship, right? Like that's the first, like if you're, if your coach shrink person can't do that, like, you know, exit stage left. But secondly, is I, I believe in truly that it is best when we do it for ourselves. So I give them, if they ask, I give them available. And by the way, they have to ask, because the other thing I've realized is nobody wants unsolicited advice. And all they do is nod and say yes and ignore you, or they feel infantilized and they're annoyed. So, you know, if they ask, I'll give them resources, but it's really on them to like tango with that relationship. It's a, it's an internal relationship with yourself. So breathing, big thing, just start there. Most of us use 10% of our lungs. I'll just leave it at that. Mindfulness. I like John Kabat-Zinn. I have an abbreviated version that I kind of have people do because I also like to get to like unconscious content, right? So the reason I like John Kabat-Zinn is that it's totally unguided and it's really a playground for observation and observation is fucking everything. And the less guy observing, you're observing your own relationship with yourself, which is the only relationship that takes you to the finish line. As I listen to this podcast, I'm thinking, sir, how do I observe myself? What should I do? Oh, what do you want I? me to tell you? Yes. The, okay. Okay, great. So what I tell people to do and what I try to do myself, right? I take t- his thing, John Kabat-Zinn, if anybody's interested, you go- Google John Kabat-Zinn, two words, Kabat-Zinn, Kabat's with K. It's called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, M. B-S-R. All you have to do is Google that. Everything you need will come up. He's also the author of two great books, Full Catastrophe Living. Well, he's an author of a lot of books, but the two that I love, Full Catastrophe Living, such a good title. And wherever you go, there you are. And I've adapted it down because I just got tired of listening to people tell me that they couldn't find 45 minutes a day. I just didn't want to waste any more of their money or their time on the conversation that if it mattered, you would create it and you can't find it. It's not lost. I just got bored with it. So I cut it down 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night. What I would suggest is do it the very first thing when your eyes open. If it's just going to make you fall back asleep, get out of bed and do it, you know, sit up and do it as the last thing before you go to sleep. And the instructions are so simple that you're going to have 6,000 follow-up questions. And if you were my client, we would observe all the questions because the questions tell us a lot about where your psychology is, right? But here's the guidelines. For 10 minutes, just sit still in your own relationship with yourself. Don't use music. Don't alter your breath. Don't use a mantra. That's 
more like a transcendental meditation, which is also fantastic and the most studied meditation that's out there, I believe. Don't so, but don't use a mantra in this one. Don't use gratitude. Do not do positive thinking. Do nothing, nothing. Just you are in your own skin and bones. And what happens is our mind begins to wander and wander it will. And where it wanders becomes for the clinical work really valuable because it sort of bypasses a bunch of our conscious mind, right? And gets us into, you know, daydreams, tangential thinking. And we try to develop this skill called an observing ego. You just observe yourself in that process. And the way that you learn it is that I model it to you. So you come back and, you know, if you want to, again, the client is in the driver's seat. I'm not like a guru that knows them better than themselves. We know ourselves best of all. We just have elaborate ways we keep ourselves distance from our truth. And if you have a good question asker, you'll figure your own shit out. And if they want to, if they just want to do it for themselves and they love it, great. If they say, I don't want to do it, great. It all is data for me. I'm like Jane Goodall watching the silverbacks, right? It's just data. And now I get to see what's your relationship to being. By the way, everybody asks me for homework. And then I give them this homework assignment. They're like, I want real homework. I'm like, this is real homework. Good luck and Godspeed. You know, I get to see your relationship with being told what to do. I get to see your relationship with perfectionism. So all this is just data and I'm just observing it. Now I tell you ahead of time, I'm observing it, but you forget. And I'm just collecting data, the data that your words don't say, but your behavior reveals to us because it becomes really relevant, right? So you just do this for 10 minutes. The first thing when you are conscious and the last thing before you become unconscious for the night. Uh, And that is what I would suggest doing. I would love to ask you about your personal practices in the umbrella of mindfulness and self-regulation and how often do you do it? Mm. Well, okay. So I have this beloved sauna now. When I was in Honolulu, I, I lived in buildings, right? And the buildings had saunas. And over the years, I got, let's just say, in a love affair with the sauna. And I call it the womb. So I go in the womb every day and now I'm in Boston. I got a house and, you know, I got a womb downstairs in my basement. So for me, that's like a built-in time. Now, days that I can't womb, I often, you know, won't necessarily do. How do you spell womb? Like W-O-M-B, like what babies are grown in, a womb, right? Where you're born from. And I joke that I'm being like reborn in this womb. Okay. So. The womb alone is a practice in self-regulation. And it has a bunch of benefits. If people are science geeks, I don't want to get in the weeds because you asked a really good question. But anyway, the influence, it it helps with all these things. I mean, it's endless. The number of things that we call hypothermia therapy, sauna therapy, heat therapy, fever therapy is another way, even though you don't have a fever, but it heats your core body temperature. There's a bunch of ways and the vehicles through which it influences health, overall health is through heat shock proteins and the BDNF in our brain. So I like to use it and 
I love being in there, but it alone is a practice in self-regulation. You get to observe what happens to me as I start to get uncomfortable. Where do my thoughts go? How do I talk to myself? Am I telling myself it's too hot in here? I can't do this. Because odds are that's a phrase that you use other areas in your life. Very few things aren't repeated. You know, we're not that clever. We use the same shit over and over again against ourselves. So that alone is an opportunity to observe. But, you know, I try to do a 10-minute segment of mindfulness in the morning. I'll always, I open and close each day with that practice. That's just like part of being me at this point. It would feel like if I didn't brush my teeth, if I didn't do it. You know, I work out. I spend time with my kid. I spend time with my husband. Like he and I, you know, have the pandemic has allowed us, we both work from home. So like, we've got to sort of like, re- we go out and get smoothies midday, you know? So all these ways in which I am contributing to like, you know, nourishing myself. My, I, I joke with my best friend, the one I mentioned, that's a shrink. I joke with her that my self-care game is solid. Like it's solid. I love self-care. Where do you go to get your smoothie? <laughs> That's such a good question. Well, for anybody in the Boston metro area, I go to this place called Pressed on Needham Street in Newton. Yeah, I go and I get, if you care, I get the Green Monster, which is like, you know, a bunch of green stuff and a date. It tastes good. Sarah, I would say that you're approach is very integrated and is big on science and low on bullshit <laughs> what bad what bad recommendations do you see in your field what bullshit do you see in your area of expertise or in your field of work well i would say this like everybody's got their own vibe right and so like i'm somebody who kind of roots for everybody so like i don't know that i would say i see anything that's like Look, there are people that are just doing bad things, right? Like taking advantage of clients, et cetera, et cetera. Most people are just like finding their way, finding their style. So everybody's doing their job. And if you do it with integrity and ethics and an emphasis on trying to do it well for the client, right? Kudos to you. Even if I don't agree with it or I think, you know, I think where I get frustrated sometimes is when something seems like I've sometimes taken on the like gratitude and positivity can solve everything kind of movement. Cause like, I just think it, I think it pathologizes grief and, and grief is a beautiful process. It's fucking painful as all get out. You know, it's, it's the other end of birth, you know, death and, and, and it is equally a labor and, you know, there's beauty. I'm a totally different person after losing my mother and I didn't want to lose her, but I'm a more full human being for having gone through it. So it seems like it's a necessary step in life. Right. So like I get a little squirrely when something seems as though like any emotional emotions are just energy. And when people get to like censoring emotions, I get squirrely. 
I can be provocative then, you know, I can be like, you know, sort of like, no, don't do that was bad advice. It's not a quality I like about myself. I'm trying to be more diplomatic. I want to ask you an uncomfortable question. You can skip it if you would like. Yeah. If your mom is listening to this podcast, would you say something to her? That's not an uncomfortable question at all. That's such a great question. It's, you know, makes me full of thoughts. So I'm sort of a pragmatist. So I I wish I thought she was, but I sense that she isn't. Uh, and I'm not going to be able to report from the other side on whether or not I'm right. But I love a good I told you so if I am right. But if she was listening, you asked, what would I say to her? I wouldn't say anything to her. I would just want to hug her. And mostly I want to hug her to smell her. It, it For me, the smell of forgetting what your primary parent, you know, smells like your either of your parents is sort of the saddest part of grief. I, for a long time, I kept like a pair of slippers that she had and I never wore them because they smelled like her. So I would just hug her. But I think if she was here, she, what I tell myself that she would say to me is that she's, you know, that I'm, you know, to keep going. She would say, "You're you're kick ass." That's what she always said about me, even when I was a pain in the ass. She just reframed it. You're you're just a kick ass. You seem to me someone very strong on the outset and very soft on the inner side. And I would love to ask you about what kind of questions do you ask yourself at this moment in your life, at present in your life, so to speak. Yeah, so it's true. I am soft and mushy on the inside. And, you know, mostly, so I'm 46. Mostly I think about like, you know, middle age is interesting. You're sort of like, you're midway between starting and ending, right? And I just think about like having gratitude for now that I slammed the gratitude world, but it is, it is a pocket where I have tremendous gratitude. Like I am trying, especially as a woman to see growing old as a privilege and to embrace that as a, as a privilege. And for me, I want to constantly be as you know self-aware as I can and and evolving like my mom evolved to her last breath every she took every moment she had and that's what I hope I achieve right however many more moments I get I hope that you know I'm always evolving and growing yes and in the preparation of this conversation, I read few questions that you have posed on your platforms. And one of the questions is, is a sense of wellness even attainable anymore? Is yeah. a sense of wellness even attainable anymore? So what does a sense of wellness look like to you personally? Such a good question. And first of all, let me answer the question for me. Please. A, sen a sense of wellness 
to me is attainable because we go back to redefining mastery. Mastery isn't you do something perfectly. Mastery is that you build a relationship with discomfort in such a way that you build proficiency and efficacy with whatever you're pursuing, right? And so to me, when we redefine what wellness isn't it's not just the absence of feeling like shit. Sometimes you're going to feel like shit and you can still be well and feel well, right? Wellness for me feels like, it feels like I have psychological and emotional flexibility, not rigidity, that I feel connected to myself and to others. And I have, you know, a, a tight short list of people that I give a shit that I feel connected to. And if you're on that list, it super matters to me. And if you're not, it's like, you know, it's great, but whatever. Who are those people in your list? Well, I'll, I'll name the obvious and then I won't name the others because if then somebody's not on it, they're like, okay, but I'll stay high level. Like my husband is, you know, ride or die. I've got this best friend. I have a sibling that I'm super, super, super close with my son in a very different way than these relationships in a very different boundaried way. But it is really important that even when we're in conflict, that he feels connected and I feel connected to him because, you know, much of parenting ain't that fun and it's not super sexy either. A lot of it is like nagging and trying to domesticate feral animals. That, and then I have like a whole category, living in Hawaii actually was such a great experience for me because I collected a group of, we were living there and, you know, we collected a group of people who really in Hawaii, they use a word Hanai family, and they became like Hanai family. So I have like a group of people there that will just like forever be, you know, their their aunts and uncles to my son, and they are very little distinction between them and family. So that's sort of my short list. It's nice, high and tight. It's cut, <laughs> you know, it's like not that big. Oh, and my cat, my cat. Is wellness distinct from the absence of feeling like shit? You can have both. And sometimes going through feeling like shit is necessary. When we feel like shit, what I have found is that the suppression model, don't feel it. Oh, don't feel that way. Or a physical thing of like, oh, I got this pain. And like, look, if you're uncomfortable, you got to take a pain reliever. You know, you take Tylenol, blah, blah. But like, that can't be your approach. Like, oh, I'll just numb the pain out. The pain is telling us something. It's a mode that our body communicates with us, our body, our brain, and our mind, right? We're one integrated system, even when through defense mechanisms, through trauma, through other experiences, we become disintegrated. You're actually still integrated. It's all in there. And if we learn how to listen, it is distinct, but it's also part of the process. It is part of how we learn to not suppress how we feel and actually lean in and really listen. Because it's like when I said at the beginning of the hour that it was restlessness and boredom and sort of lack of inspiration that got me 
to, you know, really make changes that have been so fruitful. So had I just been like, oh, well, something's wrong with me. I should go like, you know, I got to get, I got to stop feeling this way. I may not have learned the lessons and gotten the sort of prize from it. So don't, anybody listening, like don't underestimate your pain. Pain is a portal in. And everybody that comes to me has a pain point. It might be professionally, it may be personally, it's often both, might be internally, might be with substance abuse, could, it's endless, right? Could be that you're lost your job, burnout, all these different reasons, but everybody's got a pain point. And if you don't have a pain point, we often don't change. So I'm, I'm all for kind of listening in a new way to our pain. What are the healthy ways to cope with pain and unpleasant emotions? And how do you deal with it? How do you process these emotional patterns in your life? That's such a good question. I'm going to answer it in two ways. One is I'm going to take it behaviorally, but I want to start with sort of a prerequisite. And this could take you six months. It could take you longer. You know, I don't know what's mm-hmm. going on in your internal scaffolding, you proverbial you out there. First thing you got to do sort of at a philosophical level is we got to start to look at this notion of like good and bad emotions, right? So we got to just sort of tango with that because like good is just another cage. So is pretty, so is smart. Like all these things that we could just put cages on ourselves. They're all just cages, just like bad. And, you know, and so just from a basic level, like right from the start, I'm going to assess like, where are they on this flexibility of like this, this middle ground where we can flexibility is the word. I mean, think about what happens to a tree when it has no flexibility. The slightest wind sorts starts to compromise its integrity, right? And it's its internal structures. It, we are the same exact process. So just think of yourself that way. You want to be supple and flexible and you can develop that. Life can most of us are born that way. Life beats the shit out of us. We get these coping skills, they become fixed. They are productive until they are not. When they aren't, you have a pain point. Once you have a pain point, you can start to actually rework this relationship with yourself, right? So that's sort of a basic prerequisite that we're coming in with. And then you can do a ton of stuff. Like you have sort of endless portals. You can start with embodiment practices. Move your body. Move it. Walk get exercise. This is, again, endless options. And the pandemic made it that they're in your house and they're like available 24 hours a day. You got insomnia, get up, go work out. You know, it's three o'clock in the morning. You're not going to fall back asleep. Go move your body, right? So there's endless opportunities. That's, I mean, we could go on. I will. Okay. So then (laughs) breathing, right? Just rewind the tape. To the three things I said before, use 10% of your lungs. Most of us have an incredibly present company guiltier than most. Most of us have an incredibly shallow relationship with our breath. We just do. Go look at Brian McKenzie's website. 
he's got a gazillion things there about breathing and respiration. And, you know, I like him. He's a really provocative guy, but like he knows what he's talking about. There's a great new book out there. I think it's called Breathe. You know, start to really investigate that. So now we got movement, we got breath, do mindfulness. I gave you, we gave transcendental meditation, mindfulness-based stress reduction. There's parasympathetic nervous system types of, I mean, it's endless, right? Pema Chodron, Tara Brock, Jack Cornfield. This is endless. So go there. Now I've given you a year of content if you're out there and you're curious about how to change your relationship with yourself and, and influence it, right? It's really about influence. Food. We haven't even touched on the fuel you give your body, the basic elements of how you nourish yourself, right? Water, hydration in general, right? And then we briefly touched on sleep. Sleep. I haven't even tried to self-promote my shit, right? Because if you did all five of these things that I just mentioned, you wouldn't, you'd put me out of a job, right? People would be like, I don't got to pay her. Build a relationship. <laughs> I don't got to pay her. Like build a relationship with observing yourself. All of that, all of those things are starting points and they're all portals in. How many hours do you sleep? Ugh, well, I am 46, right? So like I have such a, I love sleep. But I'm also a really early morning riser when I was, a, you know, I'm a, as I said, I'm a reformed slacker. When I was a slacker, I stayed up to like three in the morning and would like roam the hallways of my house and would sleep till like 2.30. And then I tried to change it because it seemed necessary. It seemed like all the people that were like embracing life were up early. So I had to change it. And You know, I probably get on a good night, I'll get seven and a half, eight hours of sleep. But, you know, there's a lot that goes into sleep and like hormones are there. There's a lot past psychology. We are bodies also. And I'm always reluctant when people are like, well, I have anxiety and I have this. I'm always like, okay, look, let's okay, okay. like slow our roll. Like you might. And if you do, I'll be honest and say like, yeah, you got anxiety. But like sometimes it's like you got a hormone imbalance. Sometimes it's that actually you have a thyroid disorder or you have vitamin D deficiency, right? So like first we're going to actually figure out like just what's happening before we start like labeling ourselves certain things. So, you know, sleep can be complicated. I suggest working with somebody, you know, get an aura ring, work with somebody who really understands. I like to look at the relationship between three things. Four actually. Obviously somebody's psychology, right? What's going on upstairs in the noggin? Adrenal, you know, I mean, it seems relevant, right? Adrenals, thyroid, and hormones. And I think if you get under the hood and somebody who's trained to do all of the medical piece of it, and I work with great people who are really curious about sleep and know its value, it's, it's prime. Well, God, we could, you could have me back for sleep because we could talk about the glymphatic system. I mean, there's so much, but let me say this about sleep. There's a guy that I love out of Stanford. His name's Andrew Huberman. He's awesome. And like he does a lot of he, he does a lot of stuff really well. Here's what he does with sleep really well. 
gives you the science. He clearly like speaks a language that's, you know, rarefied air, but he makes it digestible. And he also gives you very practical tools. Like if you have issues with sleep. So first of all, get your tech hygiene cleaned up and come to me when it's actually cleaned up, or we're going to spend you're going to pay me to do painstaking work. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'll learn a lot about you. But we're going to like go through behavioral charts and like how to clean your stuff up. And then we're going to have to exhaustedly talk about why you can't leave your phone out of your room. And nobody likes to talk about that. So like, just come to me when your tech hygiene is clean, right? So clean your tech hygiene up. That's no surprise. Turn it off two hours before you go to bed. Then add to that. For a month, when you wake up in the morning, go outside and get two to three minutes of sunrise light. And at in the evening, get outside for two to five minutes of sunset light. This has a very influential relationship with circadian rhythms. Just try that, right? Sleep is critical. It's critical. Deep sleep in particular. It's like it's super tied to mood regulation frustration tolerance memory it's huge yes it is so huge and i've mentioned this thousands of times in my podcast that if i'm sleeping any less than seven hours i'm not able to function properly barely right it happened last week we are recording this on february 12th and it happened last week i I had to wake up early and it took me three days to recover. And finally, I had to go take a body massage to really flush those stuck energy out of my body. I couldn't function. It took me three days. And I was like, how can I shift things not to wake up that early and compromise my sleep? Because that's the last deep sleep cycle too. So you're like, you're fully exhausted by like 11 a.m. I'm so glad to hear you say that because, you know, you're much younger than me. I'm going to be 34 this year. Yeah, so you're like 12 years younger than me, right? But like, and actually, you know what? It was in my mid-30s that I started to really notice the relationship with sleep. And you're totally and completely right. And let me say this. We have presidents, both alive and dead, who their claim to fame was that they only needed three to four <laughs> hours of sleep a night. And let me remind you that Ronald Reagan was one of them and he died of Alzheimer's. It is a very close relationship with how our brain ages and our quality of sleep. So like to me, when I see like really, I'll sometimes say to somebody who wants to work together, I'll be like, great, let's work together. But I'm, I'm telling you my hunt, we'll work together, but my hunch is that we're going to spend the first six months working on self-care and recovery processes so that you can sleep better. For me, that involves like, I want full workup. I want somebody trained in functional medicine and sleep and hormones to really help the person understand if there's any biochemical imbalances that are happening. And assuming that all comes back as like, no, it's perfect under the hood, which, you know, as an aside, it never does. If somebody is not sure how to tackle all these problems. Should they go to a therapist, to a performance coach, to a flow coach? Where should people go? I think, you know, I think it's about chemistry and obviously like the, you know, the, the aptitude and the style of the person. As I've gotten more and more into coaching, 
I'm super impressed with talented coaches, like super impressed. And I've learned a ton that I did not learn in 10 years of psychology training at the undergrad master's and doctoral level. So I kind of like, in like, Hey, if it works, it works and keep looking, right? Like a lot of it is chemistry. So, you know, and nowadays like, yeah, like find people that you like it, it, If it's clear that for you, this is psychological, go to a psychologist. They are trained in that. But if it's like, you know, self-improvement, future-oriented sort of growth change, I think there's coaches out there that can change your life. Yes, and I would like to briefly touch upon your new venture, if it is a new venture, called Flow. You teach people or guide people in the area of flow. Could you share what is flow? How do we get into flow? Yeah. So I'll say this. So flow is this sort of altered state, you know, where you have rapt attention, time sort of disappears. You have all these sort of characteristic neurochemical cocktails, right? You get intense focus. And it's a really useful tool. I see it as like a very valuable tool and it's coachable and trainable. It usually comes down to habits and habit formation. And again, it, it's behavioral. The devil dwells in the details. It's turning off your computer so you have a set amount of time to really absorb yourself in certain material. That's all the training part of it. And I think it's incredibly valuable. I worked for a bunch of probably 16 months with the Flow Research Collective headed by Stephen Collar, who I just love. You know, you just sometimes meet somebody and you just have this sense like, I just totally jive with this human. I mean, he's just awesome, right? So I did a bunch of, I think, 16 months where I was like doing flow coaching through their Zero to Dangerous program, which if you're interested in flow as a tool to have in your toolkit, you're not going to find a better bunch of people to go train with. You just aren't. The coaches are fantastic. The, it's great. Uh, now, I sort of, I work and hope to continue to do some fun, exciting stuff with Flow Research Collective, although I'm not doing the flow training anymore um, explicitly in the Zero to Dangerous program. But it's great. And I would tell you, you know, I would tell any listener, like, use it as a tool. It's not the thing. There's no one the thing, just like there's no magic pill. There's no one the thing. You're going to find your way by having a lot of tools, some that you're going to come to the party with and some that you got to develop over time, some that you got to change, some that you never thought about. And flow is one of them. It's really, really valuable, especially if you're struggling with focus, concentration, time management, you know, stuff that learning the skill of getting your brain into a state of flow, it's just a neurochemical cocktail. And like most everything, see, when I was growing up, things were much more like, like, oh, I don't know, they're just really smart, or they're just really talented, or oh, they're a prodigy, or they were lucky, or right. And now all that's being debunked. It's like, a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's got to be basic aptitude, et cetera, et cetera. I was never going to be a physicist, right? 
like a ton of shit is just practice. It's like, it's staying with it. It's staying with it when it sucks. It's being willing to be a, a novice. Like, like for many of us who get in our forties, when was the last time you learned something like from scratch, scratch, right? We can practice. We can, we can, we know from epigenetics and from neuroplasticity that our brain develops over a lifetime. We used to think it was done after, you know, a critical mass of time that culminated somewhere in your twenties. And now we know that's just not true. Yes. Yes. And Sarah, you, you shared a lot of quotes, good quotes on your social media platform. So do you live your life by any quote or any life philosophy? Do I have a motto? Oh, no, I probably don't. I probably have like a bunch of mottos that work at different times. I have some first principles, right? Like some that, that are with my clients too. And I tell them this, right? And like one of them is the body never lies. It never lies. You might not like what it's telling you, but it never lies. And so like I have some, you know, how you do one thing is how you do all things. That's another. I have some like guiding principles, but no like one overarching motto. And before I ask you my last question, Sarah, I want to ask you, what is the specific impact you want to leave on this world? Well, mostly what matters to me is, again, I go back to that sort of short list, right? So like, I love my career. I realize that my brain and mind and body does better when it's engaged and connected and feels passionate about my work and I love it. I feel every day I'm fortunate to like have my career. I can't believe that people come and want to work with me every time. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so this is fantastic. I got the best job. Right. But I love all that. But the impact I really want to make, I, and I hope my clients feel this way too. The impact I really want to make goes back to that short list, that short list of people who are like, you know, they are my ride or die. Right. And I want them to feel as though I was, you know, truly myself. I showed up to the relationship mostly because I took time to show up to my own relationship with myself. Right. Which is no picnic. Anybody out there, you know, it's like, I'm just like any other slob. I want to feel, you know, connected and I want people to think like she was, she was unapologetically herself. I don't want to apologize, right? Like, especially as a woman, like, I don't want to ever feel as though I'm like apologizing for my, you know, anything, frankness, straightforwardness, anything. I mean, if I fuck up, I got no problem with apologies, right? I'm talking about a different kind of thing that happens for women. So I feel like I, you know, I want people to think like she was always herself. I always knew who she was and sort of where she stood. Yes. Thank you for that. And where do you want our listeners to find you and find learn anything about you? Oh, great. Well, I have a website. So that's Dr. Dr. Sarah Sarkis.com. 
and uh, everything. Uh, this podcast will be up there linked to your site and everywhere else that it can be found. I have a blog there. I write sort of monthly by monthly. So everything's available there and including like you can see my Instagram and Facebook and all that jazz. Great. I will put all the links in the show notes. And last but not the least, Sarah, is there anything else I should have asked you and I didn't ask you? That is, by the way, such a good question. And it is a question I use with my clients all the time. If you, <laughs> if you were in my situation, what is a question you wished I asked you? No, you're, you've done awesome. And I'm not going to waste an ounce on wishing that it was any different than it was. It was fantastic. Thank you so much. From the bottom of my heart, it was an amazing conversation with you. It was great. Thank you for having me. This was fantastic.